welcome wherever you're joining us from, wherever in the world that might be, to this World Extreme, Med world Extreme Medicine Live Academy session. Uh, this evening, we are looking at the UK emergency medical response to the Beirut disaster. Um, I've got the pleasure of uh, introducing you all to the CEO of UK Med. Um, that's David Whitewick. We're very, very privileged to have such a senior figure on one of our live sessions. Uh, and he's been heading up a team that's been out in Lebanon and is still out there now um, responding to the uh, unfolding humanitarian um, disaster. And um, um, we're going to hear a 30 minute presentation from David, um, just telling us what's been going on on the ground, what UK Med have been doing, what, what, it's, what it's like out there right now for, for um, those poor um, uh, people. And there'll be an opportunity afterwards to ask David plenty of questions. You, uh, before we, we hand over to, to David to, to do his talk, I've just mentioned a few things that we've got coming up at World Extreme Medicine. So on Monday, we're releasing a podcast, which is an interview with one of the competitors on the Eco Challenge. That's a new show that's just been launched on Amazon Prime. It's an adventure race hosted by Bear Grylls and World Extreme Medicine provided the medical cover for this event. So it's a really, really interesting uh, look at, uh, at that. Uh, next week, I'm talking to Rudy Van Vuren out in Namibia. He's doing, uh, the, he does the WEM conservation medicine course, and that'll be an introduction to the relationship between animal, human, and ecological health. So that'll be a really good session. The following week, we've got a, a careers panel on military medicine. So if you're interested in taking a military route to, to your extreme medical career, then we're going to have three great panelists um, who will be able to guide you. And then of course, we've got the World Extreme Medicine Conference, which this year is virtual, and that's taking place on the 17th and 18th of October. And we've got some great guests lined up, including David, who's talking on a different topic, um, but will be joining us for that. So yeah, we'd love you to, to join us for all of, all of the above. So yeah, how are you doing this evening, David? Uh, great, thanks, Will. And a uh, pleasure to be here, seeing as here for me is on my own sofa. So it's, it's great and it's uh, excellent to join you all. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you. And um, without further ado, uh, I'll hand over to allow you to, to start your session. And yeah, everyone, please fire your questions at me. There'll be time in the second half for mm -hmm. us to, uh, to get those answered. So, David, over to you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Will. Um, and hello to everybody. Um, I just want to just take a take a second just to sort of introduce myself and the organizations that were engaged in this response. So my name is David Whittick. I'm the CEO of UK Med. And just so I can briefly explain the confusing logos at the bottom of the screen there, UK Med at the bottom right is, um, is my NGO. It's an independent medical NGO. And on the left is the logo with which we deployed to Beirut, which is for the UK emergency medical team, which is a British government team and UK Med provide uh, most, not all, but most of the, the medical inputs, including most of the staff. So um, just to continue on the, the party political broadcast for 20 seconds, you can see that uh, UK Med, what we do is we deploy as either a core partner of the UK emergency medical team or as UK Med in our own right, 
all through one of our key partners. So mostly that, that involves uh, WHO and, and a couple of others. So when we went to Beirut uh, a few weeks ago, it was in response to this massive blast, which um, I'm sure everybody saw the, on their TV screens or on their, on their YouTube link. And uh, it was quite, quite catastrophic. Um, 200 plus people killed, very probably more than that. Uh, I'm not sure that we're ever going to get to a, a final figure, to be, to be honest. At least 6,000 casualties, um, at least three hospitals severely damaged and two more partially put out of action, and about 300,000 people displaced. And this is within um, a country that is pretty small, so I don't think there were many people in the country who didn't have a relative um, or somebody or a close friend unaffected by this. Um, really quite remarkable in, in how far it affected the country um, and of course, uh, and mainly the capital. And if you can see the pictures at the bottom, the picture on the bottom right inside a building, that building was actually um, belonged to the aunt and uncle of the UK med logistician. Both his aunt and uncle survived that, but uh, you can see the entire front window was sort of blown into their living room. And they were about a mile or so away from the blast when it happened. But the buildings that were closer, you can see the, uh, the picture on the, the bottom left there, that some of those buildings were pretty much shredded. So what happened was this enormous blast wave that you can see shot out across the city and um, it just blew away anything that wasn't nailed down or wasn't metal and concreted into the ground. Uh, and it affected a substantial portion of Beirut. In fact, up to about 40% of the city. So 40% of the capital city affected in some way or other. And if you, on the map there, the, the bits in red are the bits that were very seriously affected. And what happened there was the blast wave went straight through buildings. It was fortunate, um, if anything can be said to be fortunate in this kind of disaster, that this happened uh, after six o'clock in the evening. And most of the office blocks surrounding the port where the explosion happened were empty, which was indeed fortunate because had they been full and had the highway next to the port been full of commuter cars, then we would have been looking at a death toll that was significantly higher. But that having been said, this was a disaster of some significance in a small country with a fairly small population, which had been going through quite a number of challenges and difficulties over the preceding years. So the context in which we, in which we were working was one in which, um, one of great complexity. So while there was a sort of massive national response and you can see a lot of volunteers there out with their, their brushes and brooms and they were, those were all over Beirut, people cleaning up um, in a sort of spontaneous response to, to the disaster. So it was a, a sort of very large national outpouring of, of sympathy and people coming in from all over the country to help with the cleanup effort. But equally, huge protests against a government which was largely held to blame for this disaster in the first place. And not just this disaster. So for Lebanon, obviously a country that had only comparatively recently come out of a very long-term conflict, um, 
had also been experiencing a refugee crisis of significant proportions. So 1.5 million Syrian refugees had come across the border since well, 20, 2011, 2012, something like that, and have been um, variously settled around Lebanon in camps or in rented accommodation or in a whole load of ad hoc um, and different sets of circumstances. And that obviously puts an enormous strain on a country's uh, economy, on the politics of the country, and of course the various systems that need uh, to be functioning in order for people to survive properly, including health. Um, and on top of that, an economic crisis that had seen the currency in Lebanon devalued by a factor of three. So people's savings, people's pensions, uh, people's livelihoods, uh, you know, had been eroded very significantly. And on top of that, um, of course, the COVID outbreak. And then this explosion. So it was crisis on crisis on crisis that had mounted up. Ultimately, it, it led to a government resignation, um, which happened while we were there, uh, undertaking the sort of planning for, for our response. But you can see that the, the combination of crisis overlaid on each other has been very, very significant for the people of Lebanon and of Beirut in particular. Um, the global response to the blast was pretty major, to be honest. And for, for those who are international humanitarian system nerds, um, let me assure you that there is no shortage of coordination bodies and various um, various sort of levels of humanitarian platform in Lebanon. And this is partly because of the response to Syrian refugees, also because of the Palestinian refugees who've been there since, in some cases, since the, the late 1940s and certainly since uh, following 1967. So a lot of different humanitarian and refugee-related uh, coordination platforms. And then, of course, the explosion and the blast meant that there had to be another set of coordination mechanisms put in place to take care of the various agencies and um, organizations that were pouring in to try and assist. And I'm, I'm not going to go in huge detail through all of this, this sort of list down the left hand of the screen, simply to say that the UN is, has quite a significant presence in Lebanon as do many of the, the INGOs, so the aid agencies that, uh, that we, we would all know and, and think of, such as uh, Médecins Sans Frontières or Save the Children or, or many of the others, uh, they all have a presence in Lebanon. Um, and then a, a significant amount of bilateral aid started pouring in, so countries that had some sympathy with Lebanon or some links or whatever it may be, would start putting in and contributing um, to the response. And part of that was the, the international search and rescue teams, which were usually the first to deploy to the kind of event that um, we'll see, you know, sort of urban search and rescue being employed, and the emergency medical teams. And this is where we came in. So we, and you, you can see the initial assessment team in the, the picture at the top there, we were dispatched to uh, Lebanon, out to Beirut, as the, the UK government health assessment team. So our role was to go out to make a very rapid appraisal of the health situation and to decide what kind of intervention may or may not be necessary. Um, 
and to recommend how that intervention might go ahead and how it might be managed. And then it's up to the British government to decide whether that was part of the sort of portfolio of response they wanted. Um, so we got out there within about three days of the, the blast, um, largely because of the issues around sort of quarantine and testing, which had to be sort of overcome and waivers that had to be put in place. But we got out there reasonably, reasonably quickly. Um, and quite rapidly sort of went around the, the government, the health partners, uh, other people had a look at the, the, the locality, went around the hospitals very, very quickly. And um, the picture we found was quite an interesting one. So the first thing to be said is that Lebanon has some excellent health staff. Um, and personally, I, I've worked in, in Lebanon before. So uh, for me, perhaps that wasn't quite such a surprise. But the depth of knowledge and expertise in Lebanon is very significant. So some of the facilities in Lebanon are truly world class. So the American University in Beirut, uh, sorry, I, I don't want to advertise them, but they, they are genuinely world class, as are some of the other facilities in Beirut. And um, a great many well qualified and well respected medical uh, health professionals are, are, are working there and are still engaged there. And these people are, are truly used to working together through multiple crises. So crises are not uh, something that is are a surprise to Lebanon. Um, they might be a disappointment, but they're certainly not a surprise because they've had to go through a good many. And in some ways, while the shock of this explosion was enormous, um, both, both in literal and in a moral sense, um, people reacted remarkably quickly. So if one can imagine the impact of 6,000 casualties suddenly descending within minutes on a health system in a major city, um, one can only picture the kind of chaos that would generally ensue. Now, of course, Beirut was no exception to this. 6,000 casualties pretty much took over the entire health system for something like 72 hours. And Lebanese health system is interesting in that 80% of it, or rather over 80% of it, is in fact a private system. So the, the Ministry of Health, the government of Lebanon, actually only, only control uh, 25 or so, 20 to 25% of the health system, and, and possibly no more than that. So there's a lot of funding that goes from the Ministry of Health into a private system. And a lot of various networks and contacts have been built up over the years. And that meant that those sort of informal networks that have been used through crisis after crisis in Lebanon kicked in in this case. And it meant that There we go. I think I think it was there. Yes. Yes, that looks right. Okay. So apologies, everybody. Um, there we go. Just just to show it is live. Um, so where I was, I think I was talking about the sort of types of injuries. So largely, these were sort of uh, lacerations from glass or from you know chunks of metal, but. There were no sort of major burns and um, none of the kind of sort of major shrapnel injuries that one might uh, one might be expecting from some sort of you know war zone. Um, it was this shock wave that just went across the city, rocketed across the city, went straight through buildings, 
and shattered everything in its path. So the types of injuries were, to a, a greater or lesser extent, you know, relatively sort of clean and um, quite susceptible to, to rapid treatment. A lot of rehabilitation needs coming up uh, after that, and obviously this relates to the, the sheer chaos of 6,000 casualties being transported around hospitals, notes obviously not necessarily being taken, and very difficult to trace patients back for secondary surgery or for, for other issues. So a lot of rehab needs coming out of it, um, but the initial trauma dealt with very, very fast. However, um, clearly the COVID pandemic was already on the rise in Beirut prior to this explosion. And the, the fact that we had 6,000 people and their families all gathering in hospitals, and many of the, the main COVID hospitals were actually the ones closest to the blast. So a lot of the COVID patients, people already had COVID, were out of the hospitals, in the car park, milling about with new casualties. There was an anticipation that there was going to be a rise in COVID cases. Um, and this, of course, was absolutely the case. And compounded by significant damage to some major hospital facilities, some destruction of supplies at the port, particularly PPE. There were six or seven containers of PPE at the port which were destroyed. Um, and the, the ongoing kind of demoralization of health staff and the erosion of the health system, which had been brought about by the, the economic situation which had proceeded, which meant a lot of health staff were actually already on their way out of Lebanon. They had got jobs in Europe or America or elsewhere, and, and they were leaving simply because they, they couldn't make ends meet. And this obviously had a very damaging effect on the health system and its ability to cope with a pandemic and then this shock. And so very, very rapidly, we found that while we had gone out to look at uh, the trauma needs emanating from an explosion and a blast down at the port, very rapidly, we had to refocus onto COVID. So by the time we had been there for about four or five days, all of the ICU beds in Beirut were full of COVID patients. Great deal of difficulty in persuading private, the private sector to take on COVID patients. Some would, some wouldn't, but clearly not enough. And the government was either unwilling or unable to fund the private sector to the level that it wished to be funded in order to take on the increasing number of COVID patients. And that on top of the, the loss of health staff, many health staff have been laid off and simply, as I'm saying, looking for other jobs or indeed other countries, um, and a lack of confidence in the staff, something that I think many within health systems around Europe and around the world are, are familiar that people suddenly faced with having to deal with mass COVID patients um, were concerned about their training, their equipment, their supplies, and their ability to actually manage the situation. And so what, was, what had started off as this sort of emergency blast rapid response turned quite quickly into an outbreak response. Um, and so what, what we did as, uh, as an EMT is we recommended quite quickly that we refocus onto COVID, that largely the, the trauma and the blast injuries had been dealt with and dealt with well. Um, and that really what we were looking at is trying to support an eroded and severely damaged health system through the peak 
of a pandemic. That was actually what the job had become. And so where we have got to now is um, we have deployed a team of 16 people um, and they are providing support to three hospitals, uh, not exclusive, two of them in Beirut and one down to the south in Sida or Sidon, if you're of a biblical leaning. Um, and those hospitals are taking the pressure off the rest of the health system and um, mitigating the loss of some of the beds and particularly the ICU beds in some of the hospitals that were damaged because one of them was the main COVID hospital, but clearly no longer. So patients had to be transferred and new patients have to have sufficient beds and sufficient staff expertise to care for them. So we have deployed in 16 people, mainly experts in uh, ICU, emergency medicine, IPC, some logisticians. And the mission there is to look at, first of all, the COVID protocols and to make sure that the, the sort of, you know, the WHO protocols are actually capable of being used well in Lebanon and that everybody understands them, that they're applicable to the local circumstances, the local training, the local non-commentia um, and the local equipment to ensure that staff and the hospital management teams understand what those protocols are and to work through with them how they're going to work in their particular setting, particularly related to patient flow and the setup of the building, um, which areas are safe, which are not. Um, then coupled with that, teams are also looking at the clinical case management, particularly focusing on entry into the hospital, a referral between hospitals and ICU. And it was particularly in the area of ICU that hospitals expressed uh, a desire for support, that it was in that area, not that they felt a lack of confidence in their skill as, as health staff, but their lack of understanding of quite how to deal with the most complex end of COVID. And so a great deal of our efforts have been put into ensuring that we work alongside the, the national staff inside the health system to make sure that we can deal with the most severe cases and ensure that we have the proper flow and the proper understanding of how to deal with them. And it's a sort of case of mutual support, really. So everybody that we have deployed in there has worked in COVID before, either in the UK or elsewhere or both. Um, and many of them are really quite experienced in this by now, as many, I'm sure, in the audience are as well. Um, and so the, the mission is now to continue supporting hospitals for the next three months. Um, and we are hoping that that will take them through the kind of peak period for COVID. Um, and at the end of three months, or rather before the end of three months, we'll review and we'll see where we are and we'll, we'll make some recommendations as to whether we need further action. But right now, that's the level of the response. So three hospitals for three months. But what, was, what started out as a trauma response, ostensibly, um, morphed very, very rapidly into a response to the pandemic, which had seen a, a significant upsurge in the wake of the Beirut blast. So that was the, that's the, the basic story of the whole thing. Um, apologies for the, for the break in transmission um, halfway through that. Uh, but 
I'll, I'll end my presentation there, but very happy to take questions. And I hope I don't uh, break off halfway through. Although I have to say, they are difficult questions. I might have to engineer some kind of break-in transmission, but uh, let's see how it goes. Will, back to you. Excellent. Thank you very much, David. Um, that was really, really interesting. Uh, it's just great to have your view on the ground. You know, we're fed so much through the media. It's really hard to get a sense of you know what what it's like on the ground there in in um, in Beirut. So the, uh, we've had some great questions through from those of you on Facebook Live and also on Zoom. Please keep your questions coming. We've got um, half an hour. Uh, we will be cutting off at eight thirty. We've got half an hour if we need it. Um, the first question um, is from Luke Gillard, who wants to know um, about the dynamics of multi-agency operations. Um, presumably you're not the only NGO on the ground out there. Uh, have there been any issues or, or tensions or perhaps duplication between the different organizations with their different priorities and, and strategies? Yeah, yeah, good question, Luke. So. Um... The, 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 way this, the way this generally works is that there are coordination, coordination bodies set up. So there is something called the cluster system for, for those that have, have not perhaps worked in humanitarian situations. The United Nations hosts uh, a cluster system. And that means that each of the various sectors, so health, nutrition, water, sanitation, food, etc., is called a cluster and they have a coordination body, which is the, the health cluster or the nutrition cluster. And the idea is that all of the various agencies that work in that sector, in our case, health, would attend a cluster meeting or a coordination meeting of some kind. Mm. Now, typically at the very beginning of these things, um, the coordination meeting takes a little bit of time to set up and there is a sort of scrabble around as people enter the country and try to figure out what the situation actually is, who else is there, what everybody else is doing, what the needs are and how they can fit into it. So there is always a little bit of a sort of, um, sort of scramble in the first few days of any emergency in order to establish these systems, people sort of rapidly passing around phone numbers and meeting each other or you know, bumping into each other at airport lounges and that kind of thing. Um, and that's then quite rapidly, usually within the space of four or five days, it generally settles down into something that's slightly more organized and within a week or so you've got usually a, a pretty a pretty smooth coordination system now are are, are there gaps in duplication um, the answer is almost certainly um, it's virtually impossible to have some hundred percent coordination system which irons out every single gap and ensures that there is no virtually no duplication but the situation is generally managed reasonably well and I think nobody would seek to create a gap or to duplicate the actions of anybody else. Um, there is of course you know sort of a, a level of competition I suppose between different agencies especially if they're all rapidly responding. Um, people respond with the aim of doing something and doing something meaningful. So there, there is an amount of sort of speed to see who can get there who can get there first. Um, but I think in general, the coordination system beds down fairly quickly, in my experience, with it, you know, within a week or so, it's, it's usually sort of reasonably effective. Yeah, and presumably having been in this game for a while, you know each other, it's often yeah. the same faces, the same organizations yeah. in it for each location, wherever that is on earth, yeah. The number is still in your phone, Will, exactly. Yes. Um, so you already, know half, you already know a number of the people that are going to be um, 
arriving around the same sort of time you're all messaging each other and you're aware that people are going to be coming in yeah yeah i I think i'd just like to say that that three days your response time from this happening to you having boots on the ground so to speak is quite remarkable given the you know covid time that we're in and you know all the logistics and and uh people moving that have to take place that yeah that's quite a, a rapid um response well the, the usual response time for us is meant to be sort of 24 to 48 hours right. um but yeah it, it's exactly as you say it's the it's the covid elements that has um you know has slightly slowed us but it, it was it was reasonable to to eleven and i have to say the the logistics team did a, we did a great job of sort of sourcing flights which is not easy at this point Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's quite a few questions, David, coming in on uh, UK, uh, careers uh, in disaster relief and, and specifically UK Med. We'll move on to those in a moment. We'll focus on the response to, to Beirut first. So um, Kentaro Mizuya on Facebook is a physiotherapist and a member of Japanese emergency medical team. And he's asking about the, the role of rehabilitation in yeah. the response. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, the... The assessment team that went out to Beirut consisted of uh, seven people. And of those seven people, six were UK med and one was humanity and inclusion, which people may remember used to be Handicap International. Um, so Handicap International or humanity and inclusion as they now are, are the designated rehab leads. So the UK emergency medical team has the only, I think still the only qualified or certified rehabilitation cell. And that includes both um, post-trauma rehab and spinal and other elements as well. So the, the lead for that came out with us. She is still there. Um, and she has actually taken over a lot of the EMT coordination within the WHO office. But the role of rehab for us is as an integral part of the team. So we would normally take rehab, I mean, quite often we would take rehab out to um, most responses. Um, certainly for Samoa last year, I don't know if people remember the, the measles outbreak in Samoa towards the, uh, the middle to end of last year. Uh, rehabilitation played a significant part so it's not just trauma it's also disease outbreak and uh, you know many of the other elements that we'd be doing have have that sort of rehab aspect to them and in this one rehab I think was you know potentially quite an quite an important element of this it got slightly it got slightly sidelined in that you know people wanted to focus I think on the big the big sort of large elements big ticket elements and rehab got, you know, a little bit sort of sidelined, partly because it was um, tricky, I think, to see how we would negotiate around the sort of tracing of patients and the, the whole sort of system, of, you know, whole sort of rather confused system. So it may well be that we come back to rehab in uh, a week or so. But initially, it's absolutely part of the team, front and centre, and it's, it's a, a dedicated part of the, the UK emergency medical team. Marlene Roundtree, who's an ICU nurse in Glasgow, she says, great chat, David. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, she's asking about, on the topic of, of rehab, and we're talking about a more prolonged care now, how long do you think uh, Lebanon's likely to need external medical assistance in the wake of this? Hmm. That's, that's a very good and um, 
difficult question to answer. So um, I think given, given what I've said and what we found on the ground, which is that um, the, the whole health system is dependent upon very significant expertise. So there's, you know, ostensibly you look at, you look at Lebanon, the Lebanon health system on paper, and you've got some wonderful doctors and nurses there. I mean, really great and fantastic facilities, five star in some cases, you know. Um, however, the economic situation is such that this has been really eroded. So I'm not sure that Lebanon needs large numbers of medical staff from around the world, but Lebanon certainly needs support to its health system. Um, so we didn't, we deliberately did not deploy, you know, a hundred uh, doctors and nurses and other staff from the UK EMT simply because that was not what was needed. What was needed was very specific expertise at a particular pinch point for a period of time. Um, and a lot of it in order to, to work alongside people and provide the confidence that an international team can bring. And so there are elements of that kind of uh, support that, that would be required, I imagine, for, for quite some time, as there is in any health system. You know, we don't expect health systems to be exclusively national. And it, and it shouldn't be, you know, doctors should be working uh, across borders and talking to each other and, and coordinating and communicating and collaborating. So I think that is, is definitely required. But the, I think it's more about support to the Lebanese health system than it is necessarily in, you know, putting in very large, sort of big, chunky, health missions or sending in large numbers of people from overseas. It supports to a system that the, the government and Lebanese society is finding quite difficult to sustain at the level at which A, they are used to and B, that is required, especially given the extensive needs of the population, the health needs of the population and the 1.5 million Syrian refugees that still reside there. So there is outside help needed, but it's it's of a if it's it's of a sort of nuanced type. You know, this is this is not uh, a, an, an empty drawing board we're going into. This is quite a sophisticated system. And and on that, you know, in terms of the longer term care, Andy Kent's mentioned the kind of mental health dimension yeah. to this, um, in, not just in the survivors. Uh, of the blast but also the medical personnel that are faced with perhaps some quite traumatic experiences could you speak to that for, for a moment david yeah sure i mean whenever we brought up the subject of mental health you know we we sort of asked quite basic questions like you know do you, do you think people will need counseling the question the answers that you got back were you know a kind of half smile and a kind of everybody here needs counseling after what's happened and it, it's difficult to convey quite the impact of the series and length, the just sheer duration of sort of crisis after crisis that, that has hit Lebanon. And, um, you know, people are sick of it. People, people have, have had enough, frankly. And this was, for many, a, a, a last straw. And such a sort of traumatic last straw. But yes, I think the, the requirement for mental health services is inevitably going to soar in Lebanon. Um, unfortunately, mental health is not necessarily something that the international community 
delivers in um, you know a, a fantastic way. There are sort of psychosocial interventions, and there, there are mental health interventions of a of a more medical a more medical order that that do take place, and and you know people people do intervene with around the world, but it tends to be slightly sidelined by other more visible um, or more more obvious interventions that people can see have the sort of immediate impact. So it's quite, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a difficult sell, but it tends to be one that is, you know, can be, can be slightly sidelined. But I think what we can say that in Lebanon, it's a country that uh, after, after this blast and after everything else that, is, that has happened to them, um, it's a country that has suffered significant mental trauma. It's very clear and you see it when you talk to people. It's interesting, I think, because when people think of disaster relief, they think perhaps more in, the, in terms of trauma of, of you know being paramedics and uh, yeah. going you know the glass injuries blast injuries that kind of thing but the, the, your response is much more multifaceted and much more holistic than that isn't it yes that's right and it and it and it has to be because i think what we can what we can say is that no no immediate disaster um has a simplistic answer you know there, there, there simply isn't one it, it, it never in fact so the while you know we we sit we sit and we see it we watch this uh this initial blast on our tv screens as you know we we all did i sat i sat watching and thought oh right well great it's going to be a massive trauma response right let's let's get in there all oh, but there's there's a there's covid going on as well so we better make we got make sure we got that base covered and and then you start thinking around well hold on how is this actually going to affect people and what do we really need here and then you start sort of looking at the layers of how the entire response might fit together and what you can bring to it that is actually going to be genuinely impactful. Um, then, yes, it, it, is, it is inevitably going to be a, a, a far more nuanced response. Yes. Uh, Karen O'Reilly's um, uh, honing in on this, um, the fact that the, the COVID-19 cases in the aftermath of the blast surged in Beirut. She wants to know, was that, were a large number of those cases healthcare workers? And if so, how are you, how are you specifically managing that? Good question. Not entirely sure is the, is my, my straightforward answer to that. So uh, I would say I'm not, I'm not clear on the breakdown of health workers over anybody else. Um, I think you can be fairly sure that there are a number of health workers in that caseload. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's the case, but I'm not sure whether they are disproportionately um, affected or rather whether they are affected in a disproportionate way that's any different to any other country. Let's put it that way. Um, I think what, what we can say is that it's unclear why there is a spike in COVID at the moment. I mean, this has not been scientifically proven. I think everyone suspects that the, the, the sort of milling around of, as I say, 6,000 casualties and their families um, without any form of social distancing in a completely understandable way. I mean, how could, it, how could anything else have happened following that kind of event? Um, that that must have contributed to an upsurge in cases, as would have the, the protests after the event or, or you know, very possibly. So this is none of this is is proven in any way but it, i think a lot of social distancing rules and guidelines were simply not observed for a, a, some days at a time at a, at a point at which large numbers of people were congregating 
it's entirely understandable how that happened. I mean, I, I don't know how else you, they, they could have managed the situation, frankly. Um, so I think it's, it's expected that this rise would have happened. Um, the effect on health workers that, that I saw, I mean, it, it may well be the case that there are, you know, there is an increased caseload of health workers, but I think it was largely the fact that health workers had seen the news from around the world of COVID and, it, and its various effects and were nervous, you know, lacked confidence in what to do about it. That was the sort of principal effect. And, th and that was leading people to, on top of the fact that many of them may not have been paid for quite a while or were on half pay, you know, to simply think, well, oh, is this worth it? And um, to start stepping back from their role as healthcare providers. And you could see that in some hospitals, where certainly in the private sector, where hospitals were perhaps unwilling to take in COVID patients and entire wards where staff were simply saying, well, we're not sure we really want to do this. You know, we don't feel we've had the training. We don't feel we've got the support. Um, we're, we're really not comfortable with this situation. And you could see that happening and those conversations were being had. And that was one of the reasons, that was one of the things that we really wanted to alleviate. William Clary is asking, do you think it, that the actual thermal heat or blast itself could have had a, uh, an, an effect on the COVID case increase? Who oh. knows? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> might be a conspiracy theory in there somewhere i don't know um okay now gail smith says fantastic session david and she's also said, we're all used to the delights of erratic connections so thank you that's very charitable of you uh, gail uh, but she's also raised an interesting point the, the lebanese government were widely criticized for their handling of um the blast and they all resigned um, it's not the first time of course this has happened in, in lebanon but uh, not the blast but the the government resigning um, but she thinks it's interesting to consider um, on how the UK would deal with such an event if this was to happen on, on our soil, say in a developed country. Uh, and I, I wondered if you had any uh, thoughts on that, David. Well, how that might be um, different. Yeah, are no, we, are I mean, we prepared for, for something like this? I, I think we only have to look at the events in this country since uh mid to late march to answer the question are we prepared um i think i think we are we're probably all quite conscious of the fact that no country really is prepared for an event of this magnitude whether it's the onset of a pandemic or whether it's a cataclysmic event of the type that struck beirut um i mean there will be investigations uh, ongoing for some time into the the actual causes of the blast and how this came about and there are all sorts of, of writings on it of which I, I think I'm probably you know ill-equipped to to comment sensibly um, but I think when it comes to the the preparedness level and are we in this country prepared for an event of the civil magnitude no clearly not clearly not um, who could who would be to have something that impacts you on that kind of scale. And I'm not entirely sure that I can do the, the mental maths to, to give a sort of relative proportion of 6,000 casualties in, in Lebanon. What would that mean if you transferred it proportionally to a country our size in numbers of casualties? Um, yeah, 100,000 or something in one go. I mean, it, it, we, we, of course, of course it would overcome us and we would find it exceptionally difficult to cope with it. I thought what was, what was very, very telling in Lebanon was the fact that um, it seemed to me that beyond the initial kind of shock, you know, 
there was very little panic as far as one could tell in when you know uncovering the stories as to what had happened after this blast and the way the medical system had dealt with it informally and not in a way that anyone could accurately describe but it dealt with it somehow um was really quite remarkable you know quite remarkable and you know you sort of look on it or personally i looked at it and i thought mm, could we actually accomplish this in the uk in the same way don't know i don't know but i was it was impressive Yes, I think it's a really interesting point that any health system, whether you're the NHS, whether you're a nationalised, whether you're a private system like in Lebanon, however well resourced you might be, um, is going to be overwhelmed by the way you put it, cataclysmic event event like this. It's so unexpected, so out of the blue. And and, and fundamentally, it knocked out a lot of infrastructure for the, the port and, and local health infrastructure was severely affected by the blast itself. So, I mean, that's, that's yeah, it's immensely challenging. Yeah. Marlene Roundtree says um, uh, UK EMT are being great at the MDT approach in their assessment. Um, so lots of uh, lots of praise there. Um, so what, what, one thing I'd like to, to 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 move on to before we close, David, is just a kind of a, a careers uh, angle on this. Yeah. Lots of our audience are, are junior medics or are really keen to get involved in. Uh, disaster relief work, um, whether that's uh, you know with something like Beirut or you know COVID response around the globe, uh, UK Med or a, a different NGO. Do you have any um, kind of quick tips on on how they might go about doing that? Where where could someone start yeah, if they're yeah, completely yeah, yeah. new to so this to this sector? So in the in the in the health sector, I mean, often one of the starting points is a smaller organisation that can offer you a very rapid sort of way in. Um, and I, I'm not going to name I'm not going to name check a whole load of NGOs. I think people who are interested, obviously, you you can do your research and you can see what best fits you. But a, a, a smaller organisation which you can you know often has greater opportunities quite quite quickly. For us in UK Med, we have um, a community of practice and we have a number of registers that people can look on our website and apply to and sign up to. Um, and the, I suppose the, the, the last thing I would say is that um, for those that have been trying to get into the humanitarian sector, it's not easy. Uh, I, I don't need to tell you that if you've been trying to do it for anything more than about two weeks. I think you'd have figured out that it's not necessarily that easy to, to find your way into the humanitarian sector what i would say is that perseverance generally pays off um, and that people do find they do find a way into it there is no one single path um, so it's not like you apply here and, and fill out a form and off you go um, there are multiple paths and there are multiple ways to do it and getting in contact with people networking researching the kind of work that you want to do because the mismatch, you know, there can often be a mismatch between individual expectations and what NGOs do or what agencies do or, or where you end up. And that, that can make things very difficult all round, you know, for the organisation and for you personally. So I think you need to be very clear, first off, what you want to do and what you want to get out of it. And then have a look at the various organisations that are around. And don't be afraid to sort of pick up the phone and ask people. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all generally sort of quite happy to sort of talk talk you know incredibly tediously about how the the aid world works and and how our organizations are so i think if you, you if you if you simply want to call up and, and ask people um 
you, you can get a response. You need to, need to be careful. We don't want thousand people calling up on, on one day. But I think, you know, just sort of inquiries to various agencies will elicit at least a little bit of guidance on, on that route. Thank you, David. That's great. And if, if anyone wants to learn a bit more about humanitarian work in general and uh, how you could pursue a career in that, we've got more sessions at the conference. That's the 17th to the 18th of, of October. So that's next month. Um, uh, yeah, there'll be loads more sessions uh, on that. And um, brilliant. Well, I think what we'll do, David, is, is we'll draw this this session to a close. Thank you everyone for your great questions. Um, it's been some great energy uh, and some really interesting um, uh, questions raised. And I'd like to extend a huge thank you to, to David. That, that's really opened my eyes and, and given me a real sense of, of uh, the, the work that you do. Thank you. And thanks for, uh, for people for spending, you know, part of their Friday night uh, to listening. Uh, thank you very much. Fantastic. So, um, as I said, that we do have a conference coming up. Um, we've got a few other things on the go. We've got this. Um, I've just posted the link for those of you on Zoom in the chat. Uh, we've got this WEN Academy, which is a new online learning resource um, with tons of great content on it. There's the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find out details of the conference and courses that we've got coming up. Uh, there are a few face-to-face -face courses running. We've got the MSc in Extreme Medicine. And we've also got the podcast. That's the uh, Wemcast that you can find on any podcasting app. And there's uh, new episodes released every week. So there's loads of different ways you can, uh, you can engage with us. Thanks for all your energy tonight. Thank you again to David. And look forward to seeing you all on another live session soon. Good night.